Hi, everyone. Today, we have an exciting conversation about legal design. What is it and, and, and how do you enjoy it and how do you uh, make sure that it benefits your life and the life of, of your clients? I have a very special guest, Marty. Uh, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Marty Feinstone. I am in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, which geographically, I'll just say an hour west of Toronto. Uh, I'm a lawyer and legal designer here. I'm also a father, husband, and an artist. Tell us about your legal career, just so that folks can appreciate your journey as a lawyer. So if we go all the way back to the before times, I did an undergraduate degree in what was called media information and technoculture. That's back when we thought cyberspace Space was a place or questioning if it's a place. This is before Napster. <laughs> I did this. So that program had a bit of a, it was a true liberal arts program with a bit of sociology, English, pop culture, uh, philosophy, critical theory, political economy, information, and law. So I had a phenomenal professor, Ian Kerr, and uh, he was at the University of Western Ontario where this was, and he was teaching this, uh, an introduction to law uh, course for this program. I was like, this stuff's interesting. And we would, he'd encourage us. He was one of those once in a lifetime, change your life kind of professors. Uh, he was young, he was engaging, he, he encouraged us, even though we weren't law students, to bring things we saw out in the world, bring it in, and let's talk about it and unpack it. I'm like, this law stuff's interesting. I love tech. I was designing websites at the time. And I thought, I'm not going to pursue sort of business, which is what I was thinking. I'm going to try this law thing. And so I ended up going to the University of Ottawa, following him there and focusing on technology, uh, legal law. The intersection of law and technology is my interest. Then I articled at the CRTC which is the Canadian equivalent of the FCC. So it's our telecommunications broadcasting regulator. I was there at the time when they were looking at things like bringing in approving satellite radio in Canada. So it was really interesting to sort of get that regulator mindset, see policy in play, see um, the government and everything that comes with it uh, work. And then I decided to further my career with a concentration law and technology, getting my LLM, did that for a year. And then I, joined up with Galling LaFleur Henderson at the time, now it's Galling WLG in their Waterloo office, practicing tech law. And for that meant licensing. Um, so doing a lot of licensing work, tech transactions, and then business law for tech clients and non-tech clients. I uh, did that for about 15, about 13 or so years. In that time, I had some comments at in-house counsel, um, so a, a small size and so got a taste of the in-house life there, but then really got the innovation bug, if you will. And about a year and a half, not quite a year and a half ago, started Legal Adjacency, which is a consultancy I have that focuses on helping in-house legal departments do more with less or really what that means is simplifying their legal docs and their legal ops. Oh, I, I love that journey. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> you gotta love a professor who makes law engaging and then releases yes. you to the real world and you yeah. have a culture shock. How was that? <laughs> <sighs> so yes, so coming say from the LLM <laughs> side where you're thinking a lot of academic terms and I was thinking about sort of uh, on the public law side and looking at biometric surveillance. Well, okay, so I had some practical experience being at the Breezy Information Privacy Commissioner on in, uh, sort of a scholar residency there, but then really the real world of practicing law, it's so different. So law, as I'm sure you've had other guests talk about how law school doesn't prepare you for actually doing client service. 
so that's something I always thought about. And that's really what comes into a lot of play. What I do now is that client service, that customer experience. And so we'll kind of get to that a little later as we deep into dive deep into legal design and how that is a, something that I really have a, uh, an interest in. I wouldn't say a passion, but because uh, I find that term's a little overused. But anyways, that's here now. Let's talk about legal design. What What is it? So I'm going to start by saying what it isn't. So uh, design too often, especially lawyers are going to think this, they think design is aesthetics, but design really is sort of the process of making things work for people, making things people want to consume, want to engage in. And so legal design, there isn't really a fixed definition because uh, there's sort of some, it, it's, it's evolving. It's a bit of a buzzword. What it comes down to is really taking the inspiration from design thinking, which is a mentality and, and applying that to legal systems, legal services, legal processes. And in that design thinking, it's thinking like a designer, which is looking at not the what, but the why. So always looking underneath things. So it's about, um, move, so to me, legal design is a mindset that's different than what lawyers typically use. We use a lot of analytical thinking and critical thinking, and which is seeking to eliminate all this extra information and get down to the simpler elements. And so we have lawyers go to law school to be taught to think like a lawyer. And so that means learning to break down the complex fact patterns, identify issues, apply the rules, and then articulate a position. But that's not quite giving advice. Uh, design, on the other hand, or and design thinking, it's 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 uh, constructing an emphasis on creative thinking over analytical thinking, but it does involve some analytical thinking. So it's about exploring. It's a lens through which you're going to look at not necessarily at the facts, but the experiences. So it's not accepting a situation as it is or as it's described, but you're sort of peeling back the layers of the onion and looking what's underneath. Uh, I guess to put it simply, analytical thinking, critical thinking, what lawyers do is finding the right answers. Design thinking or legal design is finding and asking the right questions. Can those two ways of thinking about the world, uh, the sort of the left and right brain, can they sort of coexist happily um, in one person, in one person who gives good legal advice? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, they can coexist because if you ask the right questions, you're going to give an answer that is uh, folk is sort of meaningful to the person asking it. So if you focus on the user, focus on humans and, and look at what their underlying needs are, which, and that's at the center of legal design, that human-centered approach, you're going to meet them where they are, meet their needs, and so they're gonna be more responsive to what you have. When it comes to, so that could be how you give legal advice, that could be how you present it, and that could be in what the advice is. Uh, we kind of teased it in uh, for, for this session that you know businesses, if we take it in the in-house role, they don't have legal problems, they have business problems. That business problem may need a legal lens to it, that analytical lens to uh, to it. But at the at the end of the day, you're giving that legal you're giving that business advice. So that's how I see that duality because uh, the lawyers still have to do this stuff do the law, apply the, they have to be doers. Let's, let's talk about, you know, why, why, why legal design? Why, what's so special about it? Uh, you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned customer, uh, user centricity, and I would love to kind of understand why that is important. Anything else that is special about it? So what's special about it is a fresh, I get, it's really, it's a fresh approach 
to legal services. And so that is taking that user-centered approach and really not ignoring it, which I think too, happens too much. And it's in that thinking like a lawyer mindset where we jump to where we think we think uh, the, uh, the analysis needs to go. It's that critical analytical thinking without pausing to say, okay, what, who is actually using this? So I'll give you the example of a contract. In a B2B contract, a lawyer is going to focus on the negotiation, getting it to signature. Yes, they'll do some questions asking, okay, what's the deal here? Looking for the provisions for the deal, but they're not actually thinking about the next step in terms of post-signature. Who's implementing it? What do they need? What should the agreement cover to, uh, to have that? Who is the audience for this agreement? Are we writing in the language that works for them? Or is it all legalese? So is it actually making the contract a livable instrument that fits the users of the agreement, the people who are actually going to be living under it? And so that's where you're thinking about the humans and the users of something versus actually those who are just sort of putting the request there. So it's not thinking about your client, it's thinking about your client's client or your clients users so that's one way i say what's special about it marty you talked about two things design and creativity those yes. are you know there's an overlap clearly but uh there's you know uh they're not the same things uh and you know to someone who has a classic legal education the two together with law may sound like, I don't know, an oxymoron. I think that's the word I'm looking for. So uh, I'm going to ask you again the same question I ask you. How do you reconcile that classic legal training sure. and that analytical emphasis um, and that ability to critically think and narrow the issue with the creativity and design and exploration, which is like much more expensive and and, and much more, uh, you know, user-focused and, and completely different methodology. You know, how would you explain, you know, you and I are on the same page. How do you explain to somebody who's been practicing law in the way uh, law school has intended for you to practice for the last 30 years? Taking this legal design uh, mindset, to so look at it as a mindset to expand upon that analytical thinking and maybe use a couple more tools in your toolkit. And really where that comes in great for in terms of legal analysis is in the problem uh, scoping phase. So rather than jumping to the issue spotted, for example, could be that this deal reflects this or we're licensing 10 of these seats to something or something like that. You're sort of going beyond that and looking at, so call that the what or the thing and you're digging underneath. You see this in uh, alternative dispute resolution, thinking back to like from the Harvard School about getting to yes, especially with mediation, you're looking at the underlying interests. So what's motivating people? What are their needs? What's not being met and how to address that? It's looking at the starting point, analyzing the questions, analyzing the issues from a better understanding. And you're always asking why something is, drilling down to get to those human needs from there you may actually see that there was a, a root cause of the problem that actually needs to be addressed as opposed to what's on the surface. Think of it another way. Uh, legal design is a, at, the, at its outset is looking at not the symptoms, not treating the symptoms of something, but looking for the underlying malady that's there. You've talked about a couple of things. You talked about the uh, contract, my favorite subject. Mm -hmm. Alert, we can talk about it all day. So oh, yeah. Me <laughs> buckle too. Up. <laughs> yeah. Buckle up. And an alternative uh, fee arrangements. 
Um, and you also mentioned that you work with a lot with in-house attorneys mm -hmm. and uh, also been in-house and familiar with it. Um, if you uh, were to advise in-house practitioners where the opportunity for legal design is and where to focus, what is the, what is the universe and where would you start? Sure, sure. So uh, for me, what I do, I focus on three areas, do three things. I make help uh, my clients who are in in-house departments have engaging easy to understand easy to negotiate contracts second thing i do is uh provide sort of working on looking for the most important problem to them and helping them address that problem by using legal design skills so that might be a problem i've worked on is what we don't know what KPIs to measure, or there's this perception that things are always stuck in legal, or we need to communicate with the business on the platforms they use. How do we do that? Uh, and, and so it's some of that innovation, if you will. So it's that innovation mindset, which I always like to uh, remind people, innovation is not invention, it's improvement. And, and so it's bringing that curiosity uh, and looking at the, the user-centered issue, sorry, in, in terms of to bring that innovation. Third thing I do coming back to that are experiences. So these might be experiences based around, um, not just for in-house, but for the legal community. I had done one recently, which I called the deep work sprint. So we warmed up with some contract simplification exercises, but then help people address the problem is how do you work well and work deeply and uh, all in on something as opposed to when our typical pro pattern is the shallow work where we're doing switch tasking, multitasking, we're getting, we're busy, but we're not getting a lot done. So those are sort of the three things I do, but a big area of legal design where it sees itself in-house is contract simplification, visual contracts. So we could certainly go down that route, but oh, then yeah. it's we about pro process go. improvement. Well, yeah. That you, you know, you don't have to ask me twice. We're gonna go to- Okay, my... let's do that. <laughs> because you just mentioned two words with the word contract that don't usually go together. One word, engaging. Yes. Uh oh, engaging. I don't know how often that happens. And too easy. The two words don't usually go with uh, with yeah. a contract. So let's let's explore both. Let's talk about engaging. How do you make contracts engaging? What does that mean? Who does yeah. it engage? And what are the examples of way to make it engaging? So the first way to make it engaging is to know your audience, who is actually going to read or use the contract, and more importantly, that using point. So you have to message and speak and make it usable and accessible to that audience. So if it's accessible to them, something they could use, so it's useful, they're going to be engaged by it. So it's not about a one size fits all to just slap on some icons or put a lot of uh, a nice little font. It's about actually understanding the audience using words they use, using terminology that they'll understand where you can, because sometimes you can uh, escape legal terms of art. So for example, if you say security interest, I mean, the law that that's there. So some things you can avoid, but using a lot of plain language goes a lot of ways. Another way to make it engaging is to actually make the information easy to use. So that's pulling on content design and information design. So you're making it readable. We all skim now. 
Uh, no one's reading things unless they really, really, really have to. So it's kind of pulling in some of these elements of the language you're using and how you're presenting it to make it engaging. But think about accessibility too, where you have people with visual issues. So you, that's where you can't just rely on visual contracts to make it engaging to that audience. It, then it would have to be formatted in a way that's easy for screen readers to read it and, and to read it to the user and make it accessible in that way. Um, another way to make it engaging is how you format a contract. So maybe put all the business terms in the front, put all the legal stuff in the back. Um, so then those who actually are going to address the business issues and leave, live under it, as I call it, they have everything easy to access. But even for the lawyers who are negotiating, why not put a term sheet front page that at least says, oh, limitation of liability, it's mutual. So then they know going into it sort of what to expect with this agreement and have the address for service, notice for uh, the notice address for service right at the front, make it easy to find. You know, So it's letting it live beyond just a CLM database but thinking that post-signature implementation point. I know I probably am no, taking no, off some no, people no, there. No, let's talk about easy. So I remember being yeah. a junior lawyer, actually not even a lawyer. I was um, I, I, I was an intern, an intern and, and I, um, I was uh, a clerk at one of the firms. Uh, since I've been a clerk in more than one firm, mm -hmm. so you won't know which one it is. One of those firms, a well-known partner, very well-recognized IP lawyer, takes us to a well-known Silicon Valley company. You heard of that company before. Um, when we walk in, uh, we're asked to sign, you know, whatever we're asked to sign, we all duly sign. He's entered in the round and asks, how many of you read what you signed? <laughs> to our mm -hmm. eyes. We like uh, none of us did, and he said yep. that's exactly the point. Uh, <laughs> um, he, you know, if 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 a law student, a lawyer doesn't read mm -hmm. it, uh, you can only you have no reasonable expectation that that anyone else outside of interest of reading a contract will actually read a contract. You, on the other hand, talking about easy to read and engaging. We just talk about engaging. Yep. Let's talk about easy. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is formatting changing the terms, the business up front, yep. legal in the back, anything else. And, and, and then actually, most importantly, how do we shift that thinking where that we actually specifically write terms of use so they, nobody yes. actually have an interest to read them? How do we convince lawyers to actually have an intent to write <laughs> something that is actually sees yes. the day of light? Well, so there's the, I'll call it the, the the wishful thinking or the desire of wanting the change and the practical reality. Let me talk about the wishful thinking and then if I forget to remind me to get back to the reality. So um, th there's definitely a drive, especially in the in-house world to have use plain language, use better language, remove the legalese, remove redundancy, remove confusion. Actually, that makes for better contracts because when you pull away the confusion, you're not giving a potentially adversarial or angry party the ability to sort of twist into some confusing language or ambiguous language and make an argument that's going to hurt you. So actually, it's a risk mitigation to use better language and plain language, but it's that clarity of language that makes things better. So, um, you know, rather than using terms like notwithstanding or for the, if you just, here's an example of making things shorter for the purposes of, we have four words right there. I just said, because that's one word. It's the same thing. <laughs> so there's yeah, a lot of different ways. All the R of being a lawyer. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> no, but it'll be a different art because. But I think it makes it challenging for some folks to to yes. do it. And that's because too often, well, is, there's the practical reality of time, uh, lack of time, lack of resources to do this. So if you've got a precedent of a template or a company has a precedent, this is what they're doing, what they're using. They don't necessarily have time to go through and make a wholesale change to improve the language. And so then who's going to do that? Well, what's going to come from outside counsel because the, you're on the billable hour model primarily, or if you're not even on a fixed fee, there's a time crunch to get that. And so, um, and there may not necessarily be the skill uh, with certain um, lawyers to have to make that translation, but regardless, you're not going to get that plain language because in primarily because of time constraint or a cost constraint. If you remove those, so if you give someone the time to breathe and time to make those changes, and it's it, uh, you sort of see the upside that there is going to be a return on the investment, then you could get it done. That's sort of the what I find do find hard to reconcile in reality. But there are some clients who are really willing to do it and do it. And I think there's there's a regulatory impetus in a lot of ways where we're going to have to make this change. Uh, you're seeing it in privacy law. I think a lot of consumer law is going to go in that direction as well. I'll give you a couple examples if I can on privacy. So you have under GDPR, things have to be in plain uh I, I'm not going to quote the per specific provisions, but it has to be plain, understandable language. In 2012, uh, Kamala Harris, when she was attorney general in California and they were bringing out the California uh, Consumer Privacy Protection Act. I, I'm mixing up the acronym there, but you get my point. She, uh, her office gave recommendations that it has to be uh, clear, understandable language and it even use things like um, sort of uh, tables and graphical elements. In Canada, we have an update in our privacy legislation that is uh, before the House. And so it, the bill there requires plain, understandable language for the purposes for collection of information. And I've gone to some webinars and you have lawyers saying, we don't even know what that means. Well, I do. <laughs> and so it's make it understandable. It doesn't have to be words. It could be infographics as long as so you're meeting the purpose. So that's kind of thinking back to legal design. It's being a little more um, human, it's meeting that user. So in this case, the person wanting, to, needing to know where their, how their information is going to be used, disclosed, and so forth. Using, look at putting yourself in their shoes, thinking from their shoes, and maybe that's the better way to sort of. I give one thing to to the viewers today is put yourself, tr put yourself in the shoes of the person who's going to be getting this legal service or getting this legal agreement and using it. Um, if you have the time, talk to them and find out what they need before you actually go run off and do it. You mentioned uh, on my uh, kind of favorite conversation about in-house lawyers, uh, the mm -hmm. former general counsel. Uh, I definitely like making things simple, uh, complete for, my, for my, my clients. I like folks on my team to have a relationship with a contract that is not dysfunctional, that they know yeah. that they have a contract that governs a relationship. They know what's in it. They know how to check it and they really can easily uh, go forward and build businesses. Um, the ecosystem in-house is increasingly complex and has yeah. many other actors. We're talking about legal operators. Uh, and thank God we're now including other professionals uh, to helping us build the brighter future of law. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it turns out as if people have a lot to bring to the table, 
again, mind blown. But how can legal design be helpful, not just to in-house lawyers, you know, not just to the office of the yep. general counsel and those with the JD and members of the bar, but to this much larger uh, ecosystem of people who have relationship with law? Sure. So if we look at the larger organizations, a lot of them are using design thinking. So it's nothing foreign to them uh, as a concept. So I think one way we could look at it is a way for the legal department to collaborate with other aspects of the organization or the business. So sales and customer success have mapped out a customer journey and they're focusing on the customer service experience. Well, is legal a part of that? Is legal on the customer journey map? And how? Sh and then if it is, are you looking to make sure that the contracting process or dealing with customer complaints, warranty issues, which some, depending on the organization, may touch in legal, is that being thought of? Another uh, way that's important in, in sort of the larger organization is, yeah, legal ops. That's a great role to actually implement some of the thinking, and I bet they are, if, if they are sort of taking that design thinking or mentality or an agile approach or other sort of project management approach to solve some of the process issues, some of the flow issues. They're looking at the underlying pr uh, problem or an underlying root cause to a problem. And then also it's change management. So when you're bringing in, let's say a new technology or a process change, well, within that implementation, you have to look at it at proper change management and change management's really about focusing on the people who are gonna be using that new tool. It's gotta work for them because if it doesn't work, you're actually making larger problems, wasting money. And you're in fact, you're ingraining sort of something that thing that didn't work. So those are just a couple of big areas. Another one is procurement, too, could actually get a benefit <laughs> for that. Because as a relationship with law. <laughs> absolutely. And, and procurement in terms of the contracting process, but looking at it from, again, from... Um, from a process perspective, from an efficiency perspective, from if you think back to what I was talking about, about it's an innovation mindset. And so it's looking at the user. So procurement could look at who are the users seeking procurement? How do they are gonna use the agreement? Maybe it's in terms of vetting. Maybe that's how things are gonna be scored a little different. So there's a lot of different functions that could do that. But I think the best way is that collaborative approach, bring legal into some of the other processes, you know, especially if there isn't a product council role. Well, maybe legal could sort of uh, infuse itself into some of the, the, uh, the sort of the, the creation, sort of the product groups. So it can be a little more curious and think a little less critically and always pouring water, sort of cold water on the fire, but actually thinking a little more like how might we be able to do this. And so shifting of that, and you do see a lot of that in the product council role, but again, where it's not there, that's one way legal could help the business is on the revenue generating side, thinking about how do we make, how could legal or the law actually be a way to generate revenue? Maybe it gives you a competitive advantage because your jurisdiction has a law like this versus another jurisdiction. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of different ways. Yeah, I love using yeah. that analogy of food. We all know that fusion food is, you know, when you take mm -hmm. two different cuisines, it tastes fantastic. Uh, yeah. There are many examples of it. Um, and uh, I can tell you that the fusion of law feels, looks, yep. and functionally fantastic. So that's definitely a, a way a way to go um, about it. Uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of times sort of, uh, you know, DIY aspect of it, you know. Uh, let's yes. talk about, you know, DIY, what, where you can start, you know, if you're starting out, if you have a budget, if you want to get your toes wet, 
you know, some tips for those of us, of us who like the DIY. Yes. So I'm a big believer in DIY, a big believer of being nimble and quick. And uh, and this is actually talked about sort of how do you reconcile uh, the law or sorry, the lawyer mindset with the designer mindset. I think that's one way where it's hard because a lot of lawyers fashion themselves as perfectionists and taking this design mindset is the antithesis to that because you're setting yourself up for trial and error and most importantly, iteration. Um, and that's kind of, that's really the, the, the uh, one great thing you could get out of this. So you're going to prototype, but it's not prototype in terms of pilot. So think of actually making that most viable or minimum viable product that actually is going to do something. It's getting scrappy. It might be like getting a piece of paper and just writing out your form and just uh, role playing, testing that. And so that's one way to DIY is sort of get crafty, get creative. Don't worry about it looking shiny from the get go. Another way, if you want, if you're interested in legal design, it is something you could sort of do on your own. Cause remember it's a thinking, it's a mindset, but the actual doing it, well, that just goes depend in terms of resources and time. So there's some great groups like legal creatives where you could uh, learn about legal design and actually get certified uh, as a practitioner, but also in the doing. So that's where a lot of it comes. So do the reading, listen to the podcast, read some articles. It's out there. There's a lot of materials out there. And uh, one great one, you can look at IDEO, which sort of is a big in the design IDO is where it started uh, that's right Tim Brown <laughs> and so forth uh, that's right and, and so their general counsel is not only their GC but she's on their design teams and so she uh, she's been on some podcasts um, and, and there's some interviews with her so there's a lot of different places you could do the reading and that's great but then it's the doing and so that's maybe where uh, lawyers themselves may have a little bit of a trouble sort of going all in because uh, it's just too, so it's a, that application of applying design thinking and the law together. There's not always the time to do that or applying it to a legal service. But if you're thinking it, you understand it, you're going to be able to move in that space. Or if you're bringing in outside help, sort of understand where they're coming from, but also inform them better. But it's going to help a common understanding. So those are some tips. Just uh, look for resources on design thinking. Check out some of the certification bodies that are on there, either on design thinking or legal design specifically. I'd mentioned uh, Tessa had chatted, so she's behind Legal Creatives. That's where I got uh, one of my certifications, and, and I endorse it here. Um, yeah, and then do it. Just practice it. Yeah. Jump into it and practice it. That, no that's probably the best way. No shortage of books on, on design yeah. generally, and I, I do, and this school uh, at Stanford have put out quite a, yep. a number of resources on their website. There's yep. Margaret Hagen. Some yeah. books that you can buy as well, and 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 there are a number of people. I uh, I love what Tessa is doing uh, with yeah. Legal Creatives. Uh, her content is fantastic. Um, I highly recommend joining and and uh, other lawyers all over the world uh, to right. uh, to make this uh, an international exciting yeah. effort. I love the energy of that place. I'll be speaking there in a couple of weeks. Uh, so hope to see many of you there as well. Uh, she, she's doing quite a lot. There's a lot of resources. Um, yeah. Once you read her too and change your mindset. Yeah. You, and you I have a couple. Oops, stop. I'll give you an opportunity to speak. You will not be able to stop to redesign everything around you. I had an opportunity to be part of the D school. Uh, oh, wow. 
workshops uh, actually over 10 years ago when I graduated from law school that I could not take my designer hat on, even, hat, even if you asked. So highly oh. recommend. So Marty, what are the books you recommend? Sure. So there's Law by Design by Margaret Hagen. Uh, there's another one called Design Thinking, The Answer to the Impasse Between Innovation and Regulation. That's by Alice Armitage and a few others. And that was actually a paper in a Georgetown Law Review. So that's Design Thinking, The Answer to the Impasse Between Innovation and Regulation. Another book we talked about, IDO, Tim Brown, his book, uh, Change by Design, sort of a seminal book in legal design. Also check out the, or sorry, in Design Thinking, uh, check out the book, The Design of Business by Roger Martin. And then Design Thinking and Legal Practice Management. That's a paper by Mark Sabo. So I checked those out. But uh, I'd love to know a little more. I don't know if we go in that direction. We're maybe coming to our time. But more your experience in legal design and uh, how you've been able to use it. Oh, I, I use, I, my favorite application, and actually will recommend the book Design Your Life by oh, yes. uh, some, of, some of the same people. It comes with a workbook. I, I got an up, you know, I got an opportunity to be part of design workshops straight out of law school. So my mind was polluted early on, um, and uh, I came at it initially not to redesign law. That seems like mm -hmm. a monumental big task. I just wanted to be a happier lawyer, uh, and I wanted okay. to practice law in a way that you know is not inconsistent with who Olga is. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that really uh, thinking through what my priorities are, you know, this, the user of one and how to make that user of one happy uh, in this thing called law and how to carve her own path. That has been something that I've been basically doing for my entire uh, legal career. Uh, and, uh, and it later morphed into design thinking law. And I've, I've taught uh, design thinking at Berkeley Law a couple of times now. Uh, so I have this dance with design um, the entire time I've been practicing law, most of it applying to my legal career, but increasingly over time applying it in my legal practice in-house and, and one of many reasons why I've redesigned some of the practices as, as in-house lawyer. So I have a very deep relationship with, with law. Well, it's just something that you had said, sort of practicing law the way Olga wants. That made me think, that, and, and what that means to you, it makes me think that, yeah, when you build something people actually want, uh, instead of begrudgingly what you think they need or maybe that they reluctantly need or get to that just basic need. So when it's what they want, it gets easier. They're going to use it more. It comes back to that engagement. And so I think that's a great takeaway for in-house counsel is start talking to people first before you go build something out or you're going to solve a problem. So you're actually getting to what's underlying those needs of the users and comes back to that well, user centricity. First. Before you even talk to yes. anyone else, ask yourself, what what is beautiful, enjoyable legal practice look like? Yeah. I think if you start with a user one, which is you, you will find that that's a really good start. But yeah, definitely talk to your clients too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, there's some more shout outs from Stanley uh, about yes. the grail of a happy lawyer. I cannot agree more. Happy lawyer, you know. Um, is and, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, uh, sort of going on my own, but it allows me to sort of pull in these different interests, the creative side, but always wanting to help people but in a sort of a crackerjack kind of way. That's kind of how I see myself. But it, the design thinking or legal design is that lens in which to do it. So yeah, I'm a happier lawyer. 
Join the club, join the club. Yeah. You know, some people think that, you know, design thinking and law or anywhere else, um, you know, is a, is, a, is a pile of nonsense. And I'm trying not to use derogatory words. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, in your parting words, I guess, you know, maybe share some thoughts, you know, on that and then practically uh, where folks, whether they're out of law school, in the beginning of their career, middle career, or end of their career. I want to be intentionally inclusive. You can use those principles anytime before retirement and after. Um, what are your thoughts there? So I guess biggest parting thought is don't get confused when you hear design. It's not visual. It's a mindset approach to actually focusing on the human and the user needs. That's the biggest thing think about other people think about who's actually using your thing and and you would then gear everything towards that all will be good and don't rely on assumptions go out and get information measure information talk to people and then go build something if you're going to go build something in the uh, in terms of getting better innovation um, and sort of this legal design is about one thing and that's creating measurable, tangible value. And that's the biggest thing for in-house. In-house wants value from its outside counsel. So outside counsel, you want to deliver value that don't just think about what value, you uh, assume what value means to your client, who's, whether they're, no matter who the client is, find out what value means to them. So you're going to tailor things to the individual. And the, that that's my biggest sort of uh, pull and plug. And then for lawyers as advice, uh, don't try and be perfectionists. So be fluid, be creative, be nimble. Um, you know, that's uh, sort of, yeah, that's that's my biggest thing. Perfectionism is really being particular uh, and particular to your tastes. So learn to sort of deprogram yourself from that and go to think about what the you actual- You have to deprogram. When, it, no. when you satisfy user number one, it becomes addictive, you can't stop. I'm okay, there you, you yeah, 10 years of you're right. 15 years of doing this, I can tell you that's true. Um, but then so give yourself permission to make that leap, that first leap. That's Maybe that's what, there's my spin. Give yourself permission to make that first leap. Uh, be afraid to, to fail and iterate. Not to say you gotta be sloppy and make mistakes, but failure's fine, because you're gonna have to learn from that in terms of what's actually working and not working. So yeah, those are some parting thoughts. Marty, thank you so much. And I'll see everyone next week. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Bye.